This morning is Sunday, January 6, 2008. You got it. I have a collaboration of notes. None of them are my outline. They're just little reminders, so bear with me. Uh, what I want to talk about this morning, and Steve, your message was dead on about there being changes in characters and us being transformed every day. Uh, I'm going to talk about transform or conform. So uh, I wanted to call it Transformers, but I looked it up and sure enough, Eric had done a message called Transformers on April 6th. So this is Transformers Volume 2. <laughs> and he didn't patent it, so he said I could use it. And you'll probably do it better than I did. So. No, no. Okay. Um, I did look up the definition of transform and conform, and I'll, I'll start off the message with this. Uh, transform means to, let me start off with conform. Conform means to be similar or identical in pattern. Transform means to have a change in structure, appearance, or character. And um, with that in mind, turn to Romans 12. Okay, here we go. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, and this is Paul talking to the Romans, um, actually to preface this, when I, when I read this over and over again, it was almost like I began to see the Romans like kind of lined up, and this is not Roman soldiers, but it was like I began to see the Christians lined up, and Paul was trying to get them fired up about living in this world, but not being like it. And uh, I picture him just so fired up, and he's trying to get them fired up, so try and picture that when you read this. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform. Let me go ahead and insert the definition. Do not be similar or identical in pattern any longer to the pattern of this world, but be changed in structure, appearance, and character by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Uh... This morning we're going to go over the principles that the kingdom of God operates under and the principles that the world operates under. We're going to distinguish the two and then we're going to talk about uh, telltale signs of which one you're following and uh, hopefully by the end of it we'll understand what we need to do to live in a constant state of operating under the kingdom principles. Amen. <clears throat> if you would, turn with me to Genesis 39. And while you're turning there, I'll explain how I got this message. Uh, I had another message that I was going to talk about about a month ago, but uh, things started to get crazy hectic with the holidays, and uh, one thing led to another, and here I am on, in January, and the Lord changed my mind and gave me a different message. Um, I woke up at 5 o'clock in the morning, and... Uh, I was sick, and the Lord was telling me, you need to get up. And I said, but Lord, I'm sick, and I'm tired. I need to get my sleep so that I can get better. And he said to me, don't you think that I can give you energy and make you better? I said, well, that's a good point. <laughs> and uh, I sat up on the edge of my bed, and, and I, I, all of a sudden it came to me because Eric had already told me that I was going to preach this Sunday about two, three weeks ago, three weeks ago. And uh, all of a sudden I had that feeling in my heart when you know the Lord's about to speak to you, and 
And I said, you're about to give me the word for Sunday, aren't you? And he goes, yep. So I got up, I got my journal, I got my Bible, and I went and sat down in the living room and uh, had some yogurt. And I sat down, and immediately the Lord told me to write down, being attentive to the things of the kingdom. And I said, well, where do you want me to turn first? And he said, Genesis 39. And I hadn't yet listened to last week's message. I listened to it yesterday. which is amazing, phenomenal. But I turned to Genesis 39, and I had no idea how being attentive to the things of the kingdom would relate to Genesis 39, the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. But what we're going to do is just, uh, I'll run through it real quick, and then I want to talk to you about a couple principles um, that I've seen in here that uh, show that Joseph is operating under kingdom principles as opposed to worldly principles. Starting in verse 1. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph and he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. For those of you who don't know, to preface this story, Joseph had been sold into slavery by his brothers. The reason they were so angry with him is because he told them he had a dream where they all bowed down to him. And uh, he didn't do that just once, but twice. And Eric said last week, he uh, spoke up when he said a shut up. And uh, so he got uh, kind of some discipline from his brothers in a pretty harsh way. And he found himself here in Egypt. But the Lord had given him favor, and he found himself as, let's see, Potiphar's head of household. So continuing in verse 3. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and, all, and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So he left in Joseph's care everything he had. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything, anything except the food he ate. Uh, stop real quick right there. Joseph was known for having favor. He was known for wherever he went, he prospered. Whatever he did, he prospered. And Potiphar obviously saw that and put him in charge of as much as he could. And um, you see here that the reason that he had that favor, the reason that he prospered, uh, was because the blessing of the Lord was on him. So continuing, Now Joseph was well built and handsome, and after a while his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he is entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. Now, if you stop and, and look back at Joseph's life, a lot of times, we as Christians, when we read these stories, we like to think, well, yeah, I would have done the same thing, you know, because God is with me, He's given me favor, I wouldn't have compromised myself and, and done that with Potiphar's wife. That would have been stupid. But look at your own life right now. Today we're going to take a sober judgment, a, a, sober, a sober judgment, a sober look at our own lives up to this point. Not the ideal you, not what you see yourself as you could be, like, I, I do this and I do this well and I do this well and I'm really good at this area. But let's just stop for a second since... And we got about an hour just to, just to focus on the Word and on the truth and just take a look at how can I apply this to my life? What in here is good for me to take home? Uh, but anyways, if we take a look at ourselves, 
what you can do to realize how would I react in a situation is how do you react in situations similar to this in your life right now? What do you do when um, bitterness could have crept in Joseph towards his brothers or even Joseph towards the Egyptians for making him a slave? What do you do when bitterness has that chance to creep in? Do you shun it? Say, no way. No way. The Lord has been too good to me. He's on my side. And it's not even a question. I'm going to do what's right in this situation, not what's wrong. Just, just think about that. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants were inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, Come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, This Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him this story. That Hebrew slave you brought to us came, and came to me and make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, This is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. What we can see here is that because Joseph was operating under Kingdom Principle 1, okay, choosing right versus wrong, no matter how it affects him, the Lord rewarded him. Now you might say, well, he ended up going to prison. How in the world is that a reward? Well, this is just the beginning. From here, the Lord begins to give him prosperity and success wherever he goes. He's already done it with the captain in, in the prison, with the, with, the, uh, with the head of the cell, the warden. And uh, from there, he then deciphers a dream, deciphers the same dream for Pharaoh, and Pharaoh appoints him to Zaphonoth Paneah, the savior of the world, and makes him equal to him. And that's, that's kind of an example of how when we choose right versus wrong, although almost immediately we might be stripped of everything, but it's worth it. It's worth it to run from temptation. Last week Eric said one of the lines was, sometimes to escape the sinful corruption of this world, you get stripped of everything, but it is worth fleeing temptation. That is choosing right versus wrong no matter what it costs you. And sometimes it might cost you everything. For instance, sometimes it might have the appearance of costing you everything. At my job at State Farm, um, we write policies, home policies, car policies, you name it, we write it. And as we're doing a quote for people, we ask them various facts and we plug it in and our system generates a dollar amount. Okay? There are a bunch of different factors that go into determining the premium that someone will pay. Well, obviously, most people are going to buy the cheapest insurance because they don't care one way or another. They just need homeowner's insurance. So there are a couple little things that give people bigger discounts. One is the year built of the house, okay? This is leading to a point. Uh, one is the year built of the house. Some people's houses were built in 1998, 1999, whatever. If your house was built in 2005 or later, you get a 25% discount on your homeowner's premium. And uh, we knew this. And when I was brought into the office, since Chandler's not here today, I can, I can tell this, Sam and Chandler trained me into how to do quotes. And they said, you can do this and it won't really matter because no one really pays attention to that. And you can do this. And so I began to do it. Well, 
slowly but surely, the Holy Spirit came in and said, that's not good. And I said, but they said it was okay. It doesn't really matter. All we're doing is just bringing in business. And I was making commission off of these sales. I was bringing home money to my wife and baby, and we were establishing a lifestyle because of the amount of money that we made from these sales. And so as the Holy Spirit came to me and said, you can't do that anymore, I had a choice. I could either steer my conscience towards him, and as he said, Nick, I'm trying to tell you, if you want to go further in your relationship with God, you're going to have to stop doing this. And I could say, you know what, Lord? I'm going to be even better at quiet times in the morning. I'm going to spend more time with you, and I'll stop watching as much TV. And then we'll focus on that later. But right now, let me just establish myself and let people know that I'm a great salesman. And then once I've gotten to that place, then I'll stop doing that. I don't have to do it anymore. And the Holy Spirit wouldn't have it. In fact, because I love the Lord, because I want to be as much as He wants me to be, I want to do everything that He wants me to do, He almost ground everything to a halt in my life until I dealt with that. And it became this huge, glaring problem. And I couldn't, I could, I mean, I, I could eat. <laughs> There's not many problems that I've had in my life that have stopped me from eating. But uh, it made me lose sleep. It made me miserable at my job. It made me miserable as a person. And people would ask me what was wrong. I'd say, you know, I'm just feeling a little sick. I'm a little tired. But the Lord was dealing with my heart. I needed to choose right over wrong, no matter how it affected me. And eventually, it got to a place where I woke up in the morning, and I went to God, and I was just in tears. And I said, all right, I'm done with it. Whatever it costs me, I don't care if I never make a sale again. And, you know, I go down in history as the worst salesman ever, and I get fired from my job. It's worth it, because I don't want to feel this way anymore. I don't want to be apart from the Holy Spirit. That's how I live. That's the reason I smile. And um, so I told him that, and I immediately went and told Lindy. And, uh, and then I went and told my boss, who was still okay with it, you know. No, it's fine, really. But uh, I told him, no, I'm not, I can't do that anymore. And um, it's probably going to make me lose some sales, but I can't do that. I can't have this weighing on my conscience. And uh, so he said, okay, well, that's fine. And um, believe it or not, Hopefully that planted a seed in him, but that's, that's a whole other message. Um, so that was one way, you know, I, I feel like I sort of related to this, but it would have been better for me to choose right from the very beginning. So, anyways, moving on. Okay, next I wanted to talk about uh, Jesus. So if you guys will turn to Matthew 4. Okay, so since we've kind of given an example of worldly principles where Joseph could have been bitter and that could have, you know, affected all the, all the decisions and, you know, his attitude during that entire time that he was in Egypt. We don't even know if he would have made it into Potiphar's house if he wouldn't have obeyed. Uh, but since we've kind of see how that, seen how that played out, let me just explain something. The kingdom principles and the worldly principles operate under two different ways. The worldly principles are all about you. How will this benefit you or affect you? How will I be hurt by this? How will I gain from this? What will this do to me? That's how the world operates. The world will do whatever it takes to ensure your preservation. It's all about self-preservation, self-gain, self-centeredness, everything. The kingdom 
operates under different principles altogether, which is what we're going over today. Uh, but one thing that happens is you become a Christian, as you become someone who follows the Lord wholeheartedly, is you begin to transition from the world's principles to kingdom principles. Okay? You begin to see things outside of your own little world. You begin to see how things affect other people. You begin to see, okay, this might not benefit me right now, but it needs to be done because I feel the Holy Spirit leading me to do that. Now we're transitioning just from doing right over wrong to being led by the Holy Spirit because even the world has a relative sense of what's right and what's wrong. I mean, they operate it under, daily, operate under it daily. In fact, the world operating under that right versus wrong principle a lot of times is what clears their conscience so that they don't have to necessarily be Christian. They simply have to do what's right versus what's wrong. And where they really fall into the trap is when they show up in church every once in a while, maybe they've said the sinner's prayer, and then they do right versus wrong, and they think they're good to go. That's working towards salvation, and that won't get you anywhere. In fact, Paul said, hey, even if my conscience is clear, it's not the final judge. So, <clears throat> anyways, let's read... Uh, in Matthew 4, starting in verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Uh, just to preface this, the first thing that Jesus had really done kind of leading up to his ministry is he got baptized. And from there, he was called into the wilderness. And Eric told me that when we think of wilderness, we think of like trees and a forest, you know, and little brooks and ravines and deers, you know. But what this was is a huge mountainous desert plain. And he was walking in this. And he hadn't eaten for 40 days or 40 nights. And even though Jesus was God, he was, he was man. He was a man with desires. His body needed to be fed. So, of course, after 40 days, your body begins to deplete and it's actually cannibalizing itself. It eats up all the nutrients, everything that you have in, in, you know, in reserve, and then it begins to feed on you. And this is what was happening to him. The devil came to him at his weakest moment. But before we finish the story, let's focus on how Jesus operated under kingdom principles in this story. Okay? Jesus spoke later in... Let's see. Give me one second. John 10:5. Let's go there real quick, and then we'll come back. Keep your finger in Matthew, though. Okay, actually, let me start in verse 1. 10:1. I tell you the truth. The man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The man who enters by the gate is the shepherd of, the, of his sheep. The watchman opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. Okay, that's, that's key. Hold on to that real quick. The sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. All of a sudden, we have a shepherd here, and, and the sheep are moving, but they listen to his voice. He calls them out by name, and they know his voice. Okay? Uh, when he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. Why do they follow him? Because they know his voice. Cause and effect. Okay? Jesus... Jesus is being led in the desert, but he's answering not based on the way that he feels. He's answering not based on how it will affect him because Lord knows if he could turn those stones into bread and eat them, he very easily could. I mean, if he, if he wanted to, he very easily could. 
but that's not what it was about. This is operating under that different, not just right versus wrong, because maybe right would have been to feed himself. But anyway, staying on point, uh, look at verse 5. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus has the actual leader of the rebellion coming to him at his weakest point yet so far in his life, in 30 years. This is his weakest point. And Satan himself comes to tempt him. So although it might not seem, well, turn the stones into bread. I mean, you know, he's Jesus. He's not going to fall for that. But when you've got, you know, such a hunger, it's just, it's all you can think about is food. And you see a steak or you see something in front of you. It's very, very, very tempting just to eat it. But it was almost like, because this is a stranger's voice, Jesus was going to run away from it. That's not, that's not the Father's voice. And Jesus operated under that, and I'll prove it to you. Look at John 5:19. So I got your finger in Matthew. And this is really cool. Okay, Jesus gave them this answer. This is 5:19. Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth. The Son can do nothing by Himself. Who is Jesus? The Son of God. The Son can do nothing by Himself. He can do only what He sees His Father doing because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. How does He do what He sees the Father doing? Well, because He knows His voice. He stays in tune with Him. He stays in His presence. This is leading up to how you can operate under Kingdom Principle 2, which is uh, being in tune with the Holy Spirit. Okay? So now let's go back to uh, Matthew 4, picking up in verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Now, you can stop right there. Obviously, the devil is using scripture against Jesus. And Eric talked about this uh, last week. And what's so crazy about this is Jesus knew the Scripture well enough, not only that, but was so in tune with the Holy Spirit because He listened to the Father's voice and did what He saw the Father doing that He knew, hey, that's misapplied. That doesn't apply to the situation right here. I'm not going to operate under your principles. I'm not going to listen to your voice. I'm going to follow the voice of my shepherd, not a stranger. Okay? Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Now, at this point, this is what I like to think uh, about this. This is how this verse kind of speaks to me. I almost look at the fact that Jesus knew what his purpose was on this earth. He knew that he was sent here to save the sheep of Israel. Okay, I almost look at this as him going up there and saying... Check it out. All of them, I'll give it to you right now. You don't have to go through anything else. No suffering. No people wondering whether or not you're the true Son of God. I'll give it all to you right now. And that, that's what I find, you know, extremely tempting about, about this little test. And, uh, I mean, I, I know that if I could skip over a problem period a lot of times to get to the good stuff, I'd take it most of the time. But that's operating under worldly principles. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan. For it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. And that's just a, another um, testimony to the fact that Jesus was in pretty bad shape. That angels actually came and attended to him. 
So that's how Jesus operated. Uh, what I want to do right now is clarify just a little bit more the effects of living under worldly principles and then living under kingdom principles. The Bible actually gives you descriptions. So kind of match yourself up with more what you see going on in your life. And remember, we're using sober judgment uh, as we read out of Galatians 5. And I'm going to read partially from the message. We were, we were kind of hating on the message earlier this morning, but they've got, a, they've got some good stuff in there. And I'm going to read you partially from the New International Version and then a little bit from the message. But this will be good. Okay. Here's Paul, and he's talking to the Galatians. He says, So I say, live by the Spirit or the kingdom principles, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. All that basically means is they're warring against each other. Okay? The kingdom principles and the worldly principles do not match up. They war against each other. You cannot live half, half in one and half in the other. And I'll explain that a little bit more after this. Okay? But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. Did I skip a part? They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. Okay? Now for this next part, I'm going to read this from the message. Okay? Sober judgment. Here we go. It is obvious what kind of life develops out of trying to get your own way all the time. Repetitive, loveless, cheap sex, a stinking accumulation of mental and emotional garbage, frenzied and joyless grabs for happiness, trinket gods, magic show religion, paranoid loneliness, cutthroat competition, all-consuming yet never satisfied wants, a brutal temper, an impotence to love or be loved, divided homes and divided lives, small-minded and lopsided pursuits, the vicious habit of depersonalizing everyone into a rival, uncontrolled and uncontrollable addictions, ugly parodies of community, and then he says, I could go on. Okay? Uh... Those, those different things right there, it puts it into a little bit more of a modern translation for us to understand. Debauchery is somewhat of a vague term if you don't understand what it means. But here, I mean, it's, it's almost like I can see myself when I'm in the world bringing these things out. I can see myself becoming a cutthroat competitor and depersonalizing everyone, you know, into a rival and producing you know, a paranoid loneliness or a stinking accumulation of mental and emotional garbage. That kind of stuff builds up as you operate under worldly principles. You might say, you know, well, okay, then what I'll do, you know, I'll just, uh, I'll make the right over the wrong decision in every situation and receive the full blessings of God from living in His kingdom. But the only way that you continuously, you can continuously do that without getting burnt out is to spend time in His presence, is to get with the Holy Spirit Learn His voice. Because then it's not just a robotic act to do right over wrong. Then you're actually listening to a voice. You're actually listening to the shepherd's voice who you know loves you because He's told you in those intimate times. You're listening to His voice and you're doing what He says to do. You're going where He says to go. And then all of a sudden, you're operating under different principles. Okay? And so it produces different results. Different results. We've already seen what the world produces, but check this out. Okay? In verse 22 in the NIV again. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those are the kind of things that come out of you 
when you're operating under kingdom principles. As you listen to the Lord, as you follow the Holy Spirit, those things naturally come out of you. It's not something that you have to force. It's just the fruit. Okay? Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature or the worldly principles with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. Okay? I want to talk a little bit about why there would be a temptation in the first place to follow worldly principles if those are the kind of things that are produced. Well, obviously, no one wants to become a person like that, so why would I ever live under worldly principles? Well, we'll talk about it. There's an enemy at work, okay? Just as there is kingdom principles, there are also worldly principles. And just as God is the leader of the kingdom principles, God is the one who establishes those in this book and in our hearts in those quiet times through His rhema, His spoken word, there is also an enemy at work trying to force you to continue to follow worldly principles no matter what and blinding you to the fact that you have become a different person, someone that you don't even like. Okay? Turn to John 10.10. 10. You guys there? <laughs> All right. Okay, here, uh, what we're going to try and do is expose a little bit of the enemy's plan. Um, just as it's good to know the good things to do, as it's good to know the right principles to follow, it's also good to be aware of the enemy's schemes. Okay? In John 10.10, 10, Jesus says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Okay, let's break that down before we finish that verse. Okay, I always thought steal, kill, and destroy. Those are just three things. They all go together, and that's what the enemy does. He just he wants to steal, kill, and destroy everything. But uh, to me, this verse spoke in this way. Okay? The enemy wants to steal from you. He wants to steal the chance at living in and for the kingdom. This is first. This is what's listed first. Okay? His original plan is to steal from you the chance to live in the kingdom. Everybody's got that opportunity. No man has an excuse. There are even things that testify in creation so that we don't have an excuse, okay? But the enemy wants to steal that chance from us. So that's the first thing that he does. And if he can't do that, well, then he moves on to the next place. This is, this is as, we move from, you know, as we move from operating under the world's principles and transition into operating under kingdom principles, there's still a time where we're kind of learning, you know? It's not that we're wishy-washy, but we're learning, you know? It's not just an overnight thing. This is a lifelong process from the world to the kingdom. Okay? If he can't do that, he will kill you in that time of extreme trial or temptation or tribulation, whatever it may be. That's his next goal. Okay? In that same way that he took Jesus, and it, says, it actually says Satan led Jesus out into the desert to be tempted. Okay? And what's crazy is that he wanted to kill him. That's, that was his ultimate goal. If he could, he would have killed him right there. But he knew it wasn't the proper time. There were different things going on. He wanted to kill Joseph as he was, you know, being sold into slavery. He, that's, that's on his mind. If we're moving towards God, if we're moving and advancing the kingdom of God, the enemy wants to kill us. That's his actual goal, is to kill us and get rid of it. Literally kill us, okay? And if not kill us literally, then kill us on the inside to where we become ineffective and don't produce fruit, okay? And if he can't do that, let's say that you actually make it. 
let's say that you are now operating under kingdom principles. Okay, this is your life. Your life is defined by the principles that you follow, by the fruit that you produce, and you are now producing godly fruit. You are operating under those kingdom principles. What's the, what's the devil's goal next? The third one is destroy. Okay, he wants to destroy the work of your ministry and the seeds that God is planting through you. Okay. But check this out, though. Even though that's what he wants to do. For instance, we can just use Pastor Eric as an example, okay? He's operating under kingdom principles. I, you know, I don't think anybody would argue with that because his life is producing godly fruit, okay? <clears throat> so what the enemy wants to do is kill us, is kill the congregation, kill his church, kill the seeds that he's planting in us, okay? That's what the enemy's goal is now because he sees that Eric is moving and will, will no longer listen to his voice. And that discourages him. But his flock, his sheep, can still be picked off. Okay? So that's what he wants to do. He wants to destroy that ministry. He wants to destroy your fruit. Okay? But this is the cool thing. At this point, in my opinion, you've become unstoppable. Okay? Because you're living a life that's defined by those kingdom principles. So you're making the right choices versus the wrong, no matter how it affects you. No matter what it does to you, you're choosing right over wrong. That you're not only led by this disciplined, you know, military-type obedience to right versus wrong. You're led by the Holy Spirit. Because it's not always the world's clear-cut definition of what's right versus wrong that God wants you to do in an instance. Rahab, with the spies. You know, she lied to keep them safe. Well, lying's against the law. Yeah, but the Spirit was pushing her to do that. And because she followed it, her whole family was saved. Okay? So we're now aware that it's not just right versus wrong. We do this over this. Maybe say the sinner's prayer and then we're good to go. No, now we're listening to the Holy Spirit and He's showing us which way to go. And that has become our lifestyle. That has become who we are. Okay? And the devil can't stop that. He wants to. But you can. You can stop yourself from that. Okay? So don't think that you're invincible. That's not what I'm trying to say. <clears throat> All right. Let's move to Paul. No. Third. All right. So we've seen in Joseph's life how he went through that trial and temptation. And he came out on the other side and he was exalted to Savior of the world. Okay? We've seen how making the right decisions in that desert place brings about almost an exaltation, a, a glory of God in your life. Okay? We've seen how we know the story of Jesus. We know what happens to Jesus. We know that God has exalted him, sat him at the right hand of the Father, and we're there with him. We know that story. We've seen the reward that just doing what the Father did. But with Paul, it's a little different, okay? Paul wrote most of the Scripture that we have in the New Testament, okay? And was undoubtedly and unarguably one of the greatest men that ever lived. He suffered more than anyone I know for the Gospel and eventually gave his life for it. He was tortured, beaten, shipwrecked, went through problems throughout his entire ministry. Had people abandon him. There were divisions, and, and, but he kept on pressing on. And so we see, well, I don't know if I want to live a life like that, a life full of troubles and trials and pains. You know, where in the world would Paul 
get the desire to want to live that kind of life? Well, he talks about it. It's because his thought pattern has changed. He's been transformed. Okay, let's go back to uh, actually Romans 12 and read it one more time before we uh, catch Paul's thoughts and the reasoning behind his actions. Okay. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Paul was a nonconformist. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Uh, before we go on, a quick little joke about the uh, nonconformist. Uh, there was a uh, leader of the nonconformist club, and he called everyone in and said, Hey, all you nonconformists, you know, come and repeat the nonconformist club uh, saying after me. That's a joke. <laughs> quick thing, though. This is, a, this is a quick little message I wanted to insert somewhere in the, in the message. It might not flow with the whole message, but this is something that I feel really strongly about, and I just want to get it out there. Um, living halfway, people who try God, okay? People who give God a shot. Well, I'm going to give all that I can, and if He doesn't, if I don't see what I want to see, well, then I, that's it, and I'm done, okay? This is, what, this is what the trick is about that. When you give God a try, okay? When you say, you know what, I'm, I'm going to give this a shot for a little while. You know, I don't think it's really going to work, but at least I'm going to say I tried. You're living halfway in the world and halfway in the kingdom. Really, you're not really living in the kingdom at all because of what we talked about kingdom principles. You're not operating under those. If anything, you're in the transition, hopefully. But after that, undoubtedly, you're going to go through trials and you're going to go through tribulations and struggles. And if your heart has not been given completely over to God, a permanent thing, all of a sudden, you're going to think, man, this, this, this kind of life is no good. I don't want to be experiencing all these troubles. I thought they said God would take away all my problems. You know, and I still see and I still see death and suffering and stuff. This thing stinks. I'm not going to do that anymore. All of a sudden, that time that you spent trying God, okay, you no longer got the pleasures of the world. Because there's pleasure in sin for a season, right? You get, you feel good a little bit, you know, and you're out doing your thing, and, you know, even though maybe the next morning doesn't feel so great, you know, you, you at least you had fun, you know, and you move from, from those moments to the next moment to the next moment. You've lost that by trying for God by giving God a try, you lose those pleasures of the world. But also, the thing that the thing that makes it possible to live as a Christian, despite the troubles, the struggles, the tribulations, the trials, all that stuff, the thing that makes it possible is the affirmation that you receive from God through His Holy Spirit in your heart that you're living the right life. Okay, that's what makes it possible. That's what makes you when you're sitting in a prison with shackles on your hands and you get the thought that, you know, is my ministry going anywhere? And the Holy Spirit says, stop that thinking because I have called you and you are accomplishing much for my kingdom. And the Holy Spirit gives you that affirmation. He stirs up that joy and you can know what? You know what? It's more than what I'm seeing right now. My life is about more than what I see right now. There is a joy. There is a confirmation that I'm doing what's right from my Father. And that does not come when you try and give God a try. When you live halfway in the kingdom... You know, I'll give it a shot. And what happens when you do that is that you will 
turn against God and you'll become more selfish and bitter than you were before. Because now you think, well, I gave God a try and it didn't work. And those kind of people become the most hardened, the most selfish and sinful people that are on the planet. That's why God says He would rather you be hot or cold. Okay? Moving back to, uh, moving back to Paul. So we say, you know, why did Paul want to go through all these struggles? Why, why would God want to, or why would, why would Paul want to give up everything? Because, you know, he was a pretty popular guy in what he was doing. He was pretty successful. You know, one of the most knowledgeable guys on the planet, probably about the scriptures, if not the most knowledgeable. He was very educated, and he gave it all up. He gave it all up. Now, God used that, but he had to forfeit everything. And the way that I know that he did is by this. Uh, let's see. Bear with me for a second. Philippians, that's where it is. Philippians 3. Oh, this is so good. So good. Uh, Philippians 3, 7. <clears throat> this is how Paul thinks. You want a, a glimpse into the mind of Paul? This is how he thinks. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider lost for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish. That's a, actually directly translated. That's a pretty harsh word. Uh, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Okay, skip down to verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this. This is, this, is, this is what we're leading to here. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. He's reiterating that. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. This is my point. Paul was already operating under a principle that said, hey, I don't, all that stuff, I don't care about it. In fact, it's dirt. It's trash. I don't care about it. What I care about is reaching the goal that God has set in place for me to attain. And Paul was driven by the resurrection. Okay? Although there was fruit produced in Paul's lifetime that you, you could see. Okay? Was it Othello? Timothy? Different people that he had trained that were being lifted up. And he could see that fruit. He could see the fruit that was produced from his work, but his ultimate hope, his ultimate goal was in the resurrection. That's what he fought to do. That's something that the world can't understand, is the resurrection. It doesn't make any sense. This life is all there is, right? I mean, this is, you begin, you end, that's it. But that's not what we work towards. That's not how we operate. We operate realizing that these bodies will one day be transformed into something glorious. And who we are in heaven, okay, is largely dependent on the things that we do in this life. How we give of ourselves. How we choose what's right 
over what's wrong, despite what it costs us. If we are in tune or not with the Holy Spirit, because I tell you this, if you think that you're in tune with the Holy Spirit and you continue to live the same way that you did before, you're mistaken. And you need to know the difference between your own conscience, your own voice, and the Holy Spirit's voice. And the way to tell that is whether or not it lines up with Scripture and by becoming familiar with the voice of the shepherd. That's how. You pray. And then in those times where you're not necessarily down on your knees praying and you're in that situation, you'll know the Holy Spirit's voice. It doesn't matter how much chaos is going on around you, you'll hear His voice and you will run away from the enemy. Okay? This is pretty cool. Eric said this last week too. You cannot press on toward heavenly dreams and accomplish the impossible, whining about all the troubles along the way. And he goes on to say, despite whatever happens to me, nevertheless, I will go forth and nothing will stop me. The dream is worth fighting for and we are willing to die to our selfish pride. That's pretty, pretty amazing stuff. I wanted to take this time now after having established these different examples from the Word to give an example from my own lifestyle from the person that I used to be, hopefully transitioned to a person who operates under kingdom principles. And I'm not, the, I'm not the ultimate judge of that. Just like I said, Paul said, my conscience is not the ultimate judge. Okay? You can know a tree by the fruit that it produces. Okay? That's how you know. Not what you think that you might be or what a couple people who really like you and have something to gain from you liking them might have told you. It's not that. It's the fruit that you produce. What is your life producing? That's how you know what you're doing for the kingdom and whose principles you're operating under. Uh, when, I gra- when I was in, a senior in high school, I went to a little Christian school. Lindy always makes fun of me for that because she went to a gigantic school. And <clears throat> Anyways, uh, in my senior year, I began to grow in bitterness like never before towards God. I always blamed him for everything bad that happened. And that was a pattern that was established. I was raised in church. My parents did everything they could. And yet, here I was, doing my own thing. And my view toward God became twisted over a period of time. It wasn't overnight. But it was as I blamed him for the different things that I was doing wrong in my life. And the different consequences that resulted from those wrong choices. I blamed God. God, how could you let this happen to me? In times of desperation, I would get on my knees. I would cry. I'd be so desperate. God, please get me out of this situation. I'll do whatever it takes. I was living for myself. I was self-centered. I was selfish. Everything that goes along with being that way, operating under the world's principles, that's who I was. I was focused on doing whatever I had to to make myself feel good, being involved in or with whoever I wanted to, so that I would feel accepted in this lifestyle, staying away from people who, whose lives would convict me. Because you, you, don't, you don't want to be around people who are living holy lives when you know clearly that you're living in sin. It's almost like a vampire to the day. But anyways, there were different, there were different good things that happened in my life, even though I was living for myself. You know, I got a scholarship to a, a good school. You know, I had a girlfriend, Alexis, you know, and I would do whatever it took to get money. So I could get money, 
You know, I would sacrifice anything to get money. That's what my life was driven by. You know, I was on my way to getting a job, marrying this and this person, making this amount of money, and succeeding my way to the top. And that's who I lived for was me, no matter what it cost. Okay? I was my own God. I was worshiping myself. Whatever it took, I would sacrifice it to myself. And I reaped everything that came from that, which was depression, thoughts of suicide, overwhelming me all the time, thinking about suicide. And that's based... Okay. I actually tried to commit suicide and ended up in the hospital. But that, at that point, I was living for myself, though. I was worshiping myself. I was out having a good time, doing whatever I wanted to do. And it was great. And I tell people, I don't want to live like that, like you, making those decisions. That's, that's fake. That's a facade. I'm doing my own thing. And even, even, if, even if I got to that place where I was like, you know what, I do feel a little guilty. And I would play the game of repentance. But I didn't, keep, I didn't produce fruit that was in keeping with that repentance. And that's how you knew that it was not true, that it was not real, that it didn't stick. Okay? Well, as I moved on and was living in college, was doing my own thing, all of a sudden, my cousin Gabriel was at this place called uh, Master's Commission in Rockford, Illinois. It was a program where you went and you just got rid of it all. It was almost like a fresh start for me. And I had to admit, although I was living for myself, I was giving myself whatever I wanted, doing whatever I, I thought felt good, no matter what it was, was doing it, was living my own way, when he would call me and tell me about this place, it's like a brand new start. It's all about God. That life, I realized, was headed down the wrong road. Where that life would lead me, I knew because... I wasn't a, a dumb individual. I could realize that my actions were leading me down a certain road. You know, I, I started to you know, push away from my family. You know, I didn't want to have anything with them anymore. You know, I would do, you know, I, I mean, I was loyal to my friends. I, would, I was still loyal to my friends. There were still good godly qualities in me, but it wasn't because I was doing anything to serve him. I was still serving myself. But I had that relative sense of what was right and wrong. But I wasn't letting the Holy Spirit lead me, and I wasn't even trying to transition to kingdom principles. Okay? This is just my life. This is just, I mean, this is what I went through. Well, I eventually made the choice, and I said, you know what, even though I don't understand it, I don't really love God right now. I'm still bitter towards Him. You know, and, and that was evident by the way that I acted leading up to the very day that I went off to Master's Commission. If not even after I was at Master's Commission, that fruit was still being produced in my life. But I made that choice, and I gave up the girlfriend, you know, I gave up the scholarship. I gave up, most importantly, all my dreams and plans and the way that I wanted it to go, the things that I thought I needed to have to be considered successful. I did it my way. I got what I wanted out of it, and no one can tell me any differently because I'm successful, right? So I was there, and as I was there, I realized that I had nothing to prove. What, what am I trying to do, you know? And I, I sat back and I said, you know what? I've tried this. I've tried living like this. I've tried worshiping myself and doing whatever I wanted to. And if you didn't like that, you know, tough. I tried doing that and I sat back and I said, you know what? I tried that and I, I want to give this a shot. I, I want to go wholeheartedly into it. But I held back a couple of things for myself. 
you know, and it got to that point. Just like I said, I began to serve God. I began to worship Him, you know, and I had those good points. But He realized where I wanted to go. He realized that I truly did. My heart began to change towards Him. I wasn't blaming Him for these things anymore, you know, because people who are living in sin, they are looking for people to blame. And I wasn't blaming anyone but myself anymore. I realized the different struggles that I had to go through in my life were not someone else's fault. It wasn't my parents' fault. It wasn't, you know, the fact that I was raised in boring churches. That's not their fault, you know. But anyways, as I began to change, as I began to transition in operating under the kingdom's principles as opposed to doing things my way, operating under the world's principles, the Lord said, there's a couple things that you still held back from me, though. And it was almost like at that point, I could choose, you know what, God? It's just not worth it. It's not worth me giving up this to go with you. At least I don't think. But as I continued to live and saw how good God was and tasted how good He was, that was because my attitude, my heart, and mind were consumed with wanting to be like God. But there were still little places in me, little dark places that were still my own. You know, just in case things didn't work out. But God didn't have it that way. That you cannot live halfway in one, halfway in another. And I had to give those up, and I did. I made that decision. And then God brought me to a place where I was learning from Him and growing in Him and learning what worship was and learning what it meant to be a, a good man, a godly man. And God brought me my wife. And she was infinitely more than I ever thought I could have made give me a commitment to stay with me for the rest of my life. <laughs> and now I'm, you know, I'm six months away from finishing school. I, I, I gave that up to go to master's commission. I'm six months away from it. Um, you know, I've got a job finally that I can hold my head up at. You know, the Lord took those things and I thought that they were great. You know, I thought, well, this is what you get. You know, you live life, doesn't always turn out the way you want it to, but this is what happens. And, you know, I'm a product of my environment. Here I am, this is what happened. So gave that all to God and said, it's all rubbish. I want what you want for me. And at that point, He restored everything that I had given up, infinitely more than what I thought it had been before. Now I realized what was good. Now I realized what a good woman was. Not this false idea you know, of what they should be or the world's idea of what a woman or a wife should be. This is God's choice for me. And now I was moving towards these things and my life began to produce fruit. That's how I knew that it was working. That Whatever it was that God was doing in me, it's working because things are starting to look up. You know, God's putting people in my path, wonderful, amazing people like John and Joy, Damon and Alicia and Hopefully, Dijon, we go from here, and then Beth and Lisa, just wonderful people. And it's producing fruit, and good things are happening. Problems, yes, still, still have problems. But you choose right over wrong in every situation, no matter how it affects you, no matter what it costs you, no matter who laughs at you, no matter who casts you outside their group, you do what's right over what's wrong. And then, most importantly, being led by the Holy Spirit understanding and knowing the shepherd's voice, running away from the enemy's voice, and doing whatever it takes to stay in God's will. So, let's pray, right? Hold on.
Oh, yeah, sorry. Sorry. This is Paul's definition of transform, or one of the ways that he uses it. This is what, Second Corinthians 3, 18. Okay, this is Second Corinthians 3, 18. Let's start with 17 just because it's so good. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. That's what this life is about. And we, who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now stand to your feet and pray. I want to tell you something that uh, I don't think I've ever said as I've stood before you. <coughs> men and women, especially young men, whether we're talking about Gabriel, Mays, or Damon, or Bran, or Cody, whoever it might be, John, this is a message you should get, a message you should listen to every couple months. This is an example of how you succeed. I sat next to Nick's mother as he was preaching, and when we got to that very first choice when he was an insurance salesman, in that story, those turning points in your life define you. What you think about yourself doesn't define your life. The sum total of your choices do. And what the Bible calls fruit is what happens when you make choices. Your choices produce something. This man gave up his desires for business, his desires for school, his desires for a wife, all of those things. He lost his life so that he could find the life that Jesus had for him. The reason that I love Nick so much is not because he's like me. He and I, he can play the drums. I can't even clap him. <laughs> he's as athletic as the day is long. I'm as fat as the building is long. <laughs> but we have all things in common in Christ because I know exactly what it's like to lose my life and find the one that Jesus had for me. Yeah. Some of you are still struggling for that, and I understand that. That's worth struggling for. And the best way, the litmus test, is find out whether there's selfish ambition in your choices or not. Yeah, that's good. There's a lie out there that says God wants you to be rich. There's a lie out there that says God only wants what you think is a good thing for you. The truth is he will use any tool in his tool belt right. to shape you for what he calls good in the abundant life. Sometimes that's the lack of things. Sometimes it's insecurity because that breeds trust in him. Yeah. <laughs> It's all kind of things. When you do it your way, suicidal thoughts will abound, whether you tell people or not. When you do it his way, all you'll consider is living as long as God does. <laughs> That's the gospel. I think it was preached well today. So let's pray.